0: And welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week we're happy to have Tater Fain on the show, and we'll be talking about his new book, American Ascendance and British Retreat in the Persian Gulf Region. Obviously the book is extraordinarily timely. Americans are about to go to the polls to elect a new president, and issues relevant to the Persian Gulf loom very large because the United States is actively in involved in the region militarily. I think that we're all very fortunate that Taylor has written this book, and I felt very honored to have the opportunity to talk to him about it. I know that I learned a lot, and I hope that you will as well. Here's the interview. Hi, Taylor.
1: Hi, Marshall. How are you?
0: I'm very well today. It's uh, actually very beautiful here in Iowa. We have a beautiful fall day. And where are you right now?
1: I am in uh, Wilmington, North Carolina. North Carolina. yeah, the Atlantic coast of uh, North Carolina.
0: Well, it's all, it's always beautiful there, isn't it? That's what North it Carolinians is. tell me, that it's the <laughs> greatest place on Earth. It is. It's a
1: very beautiful place.
0: Yeah. Um, well, I should tell our listeners that we're happy to have Taylor Fain on the show today, and we'll be talking about his new book, American Ascendance and British Retreat in the Persian Gulf region. Obviously, it's a very timely book, uh, and it should be read by everyone who is um, interested in diplomatic history and everybody who is going to vote. (laughs) That's a lot of people. Um, So uh, Taylor, let me begin by asking you to uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, where you were from, where you went to school, and how you became interested in diplomatic history and this topic in particular.
1: Okay. Uh, well, I guess I had kind of a kind of a gypsy childhood. I was a, an Air Force brat. Mm-hmm. Uh, lived overseas a little bit in, in Greece. Uh, went to the University of Virginia as an undergraduate. Uh-huh. Uh, double majored in history and, and foreign affairs, actually, mm-hmm. and uh, had no thoughts of becoming a historian as an undergraduate. Uh, thought I would uh, probably make a career in diplomacy.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, went to Georgetown University. Got my master's there from the uh, the School of Foreign Service. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, from there, uh, actually went to the State Department, where I was a State Department historian. Oh, is that us. right?
0: Were you really? Yeah. I have a friend who's a State Department historian right now. Is that right? In fact, yes, I do. He's a, yeah, That's very interesting. Tell, can you just tell us a few words about what you did there? That's sure.
1: Uh, well, I did a, a number of things. Um, I, originally, I was in a section called the Office, of, or the uh, uh, Office of Policy Studies. Uh, where we just prepared a lot of background materials for mm-hmm. policymakers on various uh, mm-hmm. uh, historical subjects. Uh-huh. Uh, and then I uh, worked as an editor of the uh, Foreign Relations of the United States series right, yes. for my last two or three uh, years there, the big documentary history project. Oh, yeah, I, I,
0: know, I know it very well. It's a beautiful thing.
1: It really is a beautiful thing. Well, that was a, that was certainly something that taught me a, a lot about history and a lot about the archives and, mm-hmm. and convinced me to be a, to be a historian. Yeah, I can't imagine a better
0: preparation for being a diplomatic historian than working it, on FRUS, it, as I call it. <laughs> I don't, I don't right. know what you guys call it, FRUS or something. FRUS, yeah, yeah uh, exactly. exactly. Yeah, I've used it in my own work, oddly enough, and it is really, for those of our listeners who haven't seen it, it is... It is an amazing thing. I mean, it, you really can read the history of American foreign policy through documents by just picking up any volume.
1: Yeah, you sure can. It must you have sure been amazing
0: can. to work on that. Well, I, my, my hat's off to you guys for doing that. That's <laughs> great. So.
1: Well, it uh, it actually uh, taught me a good deal about history, but it also, it also taught me how many people in the State Department are uh, actually trained as historians oh, who yeah. aren't just State Department historians.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, one of the people I worked with uh, was uh, in the Office of uh, Policy Planning and Coordination in the Bureau of Inter-American Affairs and mm-hmm. was doing a, a project with him about Nicaragua, and he had his uh, Ph.D. in history from UNC Chapel Hill. Oh, yeah. I remember him saying to me, uh, boy, you guys in the historians' office don't know don't know how lucky you are to be able to <laughs> sit back and look at the big picture. Yeah, no, it's nice. And uh, you know that's that really struck me. That was that was true. And I kind of decided, you know, I I do just want to look at the big picture. Uh-huh. Maybe maybe my my career lies elsewhere uh-huh. maybe, uh, in academia. Uh-huh. But, uh But what one of the projects I uh, worked on there was uh, it was I was actually there during the first Gulf War. Uh huh. Uh, we were preparing all sorts of background studies for uh, uh, higher-ups in the department. And uh-huh. one of the things that I was charged with doing was was writing a, a detailed chronology and, and analysis of uh, uh, American policy toward previous Iraqi claims on Kuwait. Mm-hmm. And uh, during the time that I was uh, preparing that study, it sort of introduced me to the whole uh, uh, history of British involvement uh-huh. in, the, in the Persian Gulf region. Uh-huh. Uh, and I became uh, pretty convinced that uh, uh, contemporary policymakers just don't properly appreciate the the impact that the, the British presence there has has had on uh, 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 contemporary American foreign policy.
0: Ain't it the truth? <laughs> and uh yeah, I, I think you're right.
1: Um uh, and especially the way British power fell apart there. And mm-hmm. and uh, sort of American efforts to, to keep Britain involved in the Gulf for as long as possible and mm-hmm. then to find surrogates for British power in the mm-hmm. Gulf after British finally left in nineteen seventy one. And I uh, decided that uh, when I returned to graduate school to get my my doctorate, uh, which was also at the University of Virginia, studying uh-huh. with Melvin Leffler, uh-huh. um, I decided to to pursue that uh, that subject.
0: Uh huh. Yeah, that's very interesting. I I uh, I would like to um, I would like to use you as a contact for some of my students that are interested in going into <laughs> into into sure. State Department of service and this kind of thing because you know I I think that um you know one of the things that uh, very much uh, recommends, I'm sure recommends you to your students is that you actually have what I not so delicately call real world experience. <laughs> and I that have is- some of it too. I worked in a corporation for about five years and uh, mm-hmm. and so I'm able to tell them about what they need to do. And I think that you're exactly right about you know studying history in general. It does prepare you to do so many very worthwhile things. And I can't speak to the situation in North Carolina, but here at Iowa. It's often the case that, you know, young history students don't know about um, the possibilities and things like government
1: service. Well, that's very true. Yeah, there's lots of, uh, uh, you know, every federal agency seems to have their own historical office.
2: Absolutely, uh, yeah.
1: Uh, the State Department, uh, you know, the CIA has a pretty sizable mm-hmm. historical staff. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, uh, just about every federal agency has their, their historical office with yeah, some really exactly. fine historians working yeah. there.
0: Yeah, and I, I tell my students about these places and also the analysis or intelligence departments that all the branches have and the um, mm-hmm. you know, State Department itself has. There's really quite a, a lot of work that can be done for, you know, by historians in, in government offices that I, I don't think that it's, at least out here, it's, it's not widely recognized. But, <laughs> but I, you know, I, 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 your students must just... Um, Love the stories you probably tell about working in the State Department.
2: Yeah,
1: that their their ears perk up a little bit. I imagine that you. they really <laughs> do.
0: Yeah, having a practitioner there, I'm sure they're extraordinarily glad to have you. Um, I'll just uh, tell them to pay you more right now. <laughs> if <laughs> the <laughs> dean is listening, please pay Taylor more because um, <laughs> he has more competency than his colleagues. I don't, don't tell your colleagues I said that.
1: So, <laughs>
0: in any event, um, was this was it? This book started as your dissertation, then.
1: Uh, it did. It did. Yeah, it was a, a, a modified and expanded version of the dissertation, just like everybody's first book.
0: Yeah, mine was as well. No, that's exactly right. Um, although in my case, the the press took so long to print it that my second book was out before my first one. <laughs> 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 Odd thing, but. Um, in 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 any event, uh, maybe you could tell me a little bit about the uh, historiographical background for this particular topic. That is, the American engagement with the um, Persian Gulf region and the British retreat. What had been written prior to your book?
1: Well, you know, uh, um, it seemed to me that everything that had been written, or most things that had been written, about uh, the United States and the Gulf, it sort of Tried to wedge the Persian Gulf itself into the larger geography of of the Middle East, and Mm -hmm. you would find it as you know a a chapter or a subsection of a chapter uh, about the the larger relationship uh, between the United States and the Middle East. And uh, uh, you know, it's actually something that's quite distinct, and Mm -hmm. I don't think you can really quite fit it in with discussions of the Arab-Israeli problem as well. Although obviously it's related tangentially, Mm -hmm. uh, more than tangentially. But uh, uh, it it struck me that uh, it would have to be conceived as part of a a much different geography. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, um, You know, the the Persian Gulf, the Arabian Peninsula, Southwest uh, uh, Asia, uh, even the Indian Ocean and East Africa uh, kind of form a a geographic whole that I think uh, American policymakers and and certainly British policymakers thought of uh, at the same time. There have been many good British histories of uh, the period uh, uh, that relied almost exclusively on British archives, um William Roger Lewis's British Empire in the Middle East that covers the period from forty five to fifty one is kind of the classic uh uh treatment of of the area and certainly influenced uh, uh my work as well. Um but uh you know Michael Palmer, uh who used to be a US Navy historian and now teaches at East Carolina had written a good book called Guardians of the Gulf uh about uh, U.S. policy in the Persian Gulf region, and there were lots of kind of smaller monographs about different episodes mm-hmm. and uh, uh, different sets of bilateral relations, mm-hmm. but no sort of overview. I mm-hmm. thought of mm-hmm. uh, uh, the United States and and the Persian, the greater Persian Gulf region, including the Arabian Peninsula and uh, the Indian Ocean and mm-hmm. even the Horn of Africa.
2: Mm-hmm. So that's
1: uh, kind of where I saw my opportunity, and mm-hmm. and I sort of encourage my readers to think of this this new geography. Uh, As as they look at the
0: Gulf. Well, it was very interesting for me to read the book and see uh, what I, postmodernists used to not that I'm one of them, but postmodernists used to call the present absence, and that is for American eyes reading a book like this and not seeing Israel on every page is kind Mm. of shocking. And I kept looking for it to come up, and then I thought, well, this is obviously quite intentional (laughs) that this that it is not brought up. That in fact this region has a coherence that I didn't. Really recognize, and I think the book does a terrific job of, of pointing that out. That there is a life separate from the Israeli question in this er- in this this area, and of course, mm-hmm. obviously, it subsisted forever before. Um, you know the the Declaration of Independence or uh, the foundation of the Israeli state. So
1: yeah, that's true. I, I that's really thought
0: I, I thought it was very I thought it was very interesting in that way because you really the, 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 there's a story to be told that is entirely separate from the Israeli question almost. Mm-hmm. And and now they would,
1: they are related. I and mean, yeah. you know any any diplomat who's been in the Gulf since 1948 will will tell you that they always get an airful from their their Arab hosts, uh, you know about uh, about Israel mm-hmm. and how it uh, how uh, you know your your Western country's relationship with Israel may very well shape your relationship with us. Yeah. But at the same time, they they tended to be pretty compartmentalized. Yeah. You know where uh, issues of uh, of uh, oil and uh, military facilities in Southwest Asia and the Gulf tended to be pretty pretty discreet. Yeah. From no, the Arab-Israeli conflict.
0: Yeah. No. I see just what you mean. I mean it is it is kind of fascinating. If I was. Thinking about this after reading your book, and if you think about American involvement, which we'll come to in a second, um, you know, and, and the kind of special relationships that Americans developed after World War II with, on the one hand, Iran and then Saudi Arabia and Israel, these places are entirely different. I mean, they're really yeah. they're really very different cultures. You're right. Um, and to think right. of them as a kind of whole is is kind of crazy. It's a little bit like. The category Asia. I'm never quite sure what Asia is because it, it includes just everything. It,
2: mm-hmm. It's not
0: really a good category at all. And neither is I think our kind of folksy notion of the Middle East. That it just it, it's it's sort mm-hmm. of it's it's this broad swath of the world where bad things happen.
2: <laughs> I, don't, I don't.
0: think we can. Americans can generally be more more specific about it than that.
1: So you know, one one thing that I noticed was that the British Foreign Office, when you go through their files uh, dealing with the region, you know, the United States has a, or had it's, it's evolved over the years, but basically a Bureau of Near Eastern, Middle Eastern affairs uh, uh, for a long period of time that was uh, uh, in the same bureau with Africa, even.
2: Mm-hmm. But
1: uh, the British had a separate Levant office, a separate yeah. uh, uh, Arabian office, and a separate sort of eastern uh, uh, division mm-hmm. You know that, that dealt with different regions, sub-regions within the Middle East because mm-hmm. they realized how, how different these regions were.
0: Mm-hmm. No, that's exactly right. So let's begin the uh, story at the, I was going to say beginning, but of course it's never the beginning. Let's begin with um, British involvement in the Middle East. Uh, I guess it was in the 18th century. How did the British come to be involved there?
1: Well, the British, uh, the British have been there for a long time, you know. And we, uh, the British, just recently, um, recently removed their troops from the city of Basra. There had been a, a British uh, East India Company uh, factory in Basra since the early 18th
2: century. Mm-hmm.
1: It was really the the first place the British uh, became involved there. Mm-hmm. Uh, the British really became involved in the Persian Gulf region during the era of the Napoleonic Wars. Um, They were worried about French influence in the region, but they were more worried about local pirates uh, uh, that were preying on Indian shipping in the Persian Gulf. Mm -hmm. Uh, The Persian Gulf had always been an area that was important commercially to British India. It was always a uh, uh, sort of a traditional seaborne invasion route uh, uh, for peoples attacking Indian territories. Uh, So the British became pretty concerned about the region and uh, sent uh, various naval expeditions to broker uh, a a truce between the the warring factions in the region and uh, put down the pirates. Uh, uh, They eventually brokered a truce between the states, which came to be called the Trucial States, which are now Mm -hmm. sort of the emirates that make up the modern United Arab Emirates. Mm -hmm. Um, And they had had a presence there since the early 19th century. But, you know, things changed. Uh, uh, Their whole emphasis came to be, more on the russian threat to the middle east mm-hmm. persia and uh, uh the area and later on a sort of german interest in building a you know railroad from from uh, constantinople down to the, the head of the persian gulf mm-hmm. um and then later on oil mm-hmm. uh, of course became of great interest as the, the royal navy converted to an oil fueled uh, branch of the service mm-hmm. Um, so British interests were very old, and it evolved continually over the over the decades and over the centuries.
0: And what, what exactly is a um, – this is a word that comes up again and again in the book and also in my own reading. I'm not a specialist on 18th and 19th century imperialism, at least in this area. What exactly is the legal status of a protectorate?
1: Well, you know, that's a good question. <laughs> it, it tended to vary from uh, from – Place to place in the Persian Gulf, basically you know they had a great deal of autonomy themselves, but agreed to let the British control their extern their defense and their external relations uh-huh. and The British signed a number of these exclusive agreements with the various uh, uh, emirates in the Gulf region, uh, most notably Kuwait in eighteen ninety nine nine. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know to a to a large extent the uh, the local rulers there were were happy to sign these agreements because they saw the british as a as a counterbalance to um ottoman uh, mm-hmm. power in the region which mm-hmm. was fast disintegrating yeah but uh, uh they kind of saw you know the british as a, an important new patron uh, in the area mhm and uh, the British you know, had these uh, uh, career diplomats, members of the Indian political service and later the foreign office, who uh, kind of stood at the shoulders of these uh, local rulers as mm-hmm. they made decisions and uh, encouraged them strongly to make decisions in accordance with British interests.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But they were uh, just about every place in the Persian Gulf region – was nominally independent,
2: mm-hmm. therefore
1: the the Indian Office and later the Foreign Office had responsibility for them. The only exception was the colony of Aden,
2: mm-hmm. uh,
1: for which the uh, the British Colonial Office did maintain you know responsibility.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah,
0: it's a very complicated uh, geopolitical uh, 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 geography. It's it's it just it, it's it's complicated ethnically as well, and and it's kind of hard to get a, a handle on, especially for a you know, a sort of European historian such as myself, who who likes to think of nation states as kind of forming organically, and you know, appear, France appears, Germany is unified, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. You don't see the same processes in this area of the world. No, um, you don't
1: at all. You yeah. don't at all. In fact, you know, the the issue of modern of borders was introduced to the region by the by the British. Mm-hmm. Uh, these you know, uh, uh, drawn borders in the sand mm-hmm. became yeah. a, a big preoccupation of the British. Yeah. Why don't you but,
0: talk a little, talk a little bit about that? Because it's something that gets mentioned in the press occasionally, you know, especially with reference to Iraq, and, and people will say mm-hmm. kind of offhandedly that Iraq was a creation of a, a several British fellows in a room with a map and a red pencil. Um, <laughs> what, what, a, what, what, what is the status of that statement? How, what is the real story?
1: Uh, well, you know, that's not too far off the mark. Um, uh, you know, these, these areas uh, were regions within the, uh, the Ottoman Empire in the 18th and 19th mm-hmm. century and up until the end of the First World War. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, uh, the British assumed mandatory responsibility for a number of areas in the Middle East and uh, and drew up the borders of the Middle East uh, Mm -hmm. uh, to comport with British interests, British economic and strategic Mm -hmm. interests, uh, in large part to to ensure British access to oil and also to protect the the routes to British India uh, Mm -hmm. as well. And that was certainly the case with Iraq, which was a a combination of these three Ottoman uh, vilayets uh, or provinces of, Mm -hmm. of Basra, Baghdad, and and Mosul,
2: mm-hmm. uh, uh,
1: but it, it's an artificial creation. But the the interesting thing about the map of the modern Middle East is even though it was drawn by Europeans and had nothing to do with the the local interests of of Middle Easterners, uh, the map of the Middle East has been remarkably durable. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, basically the the same borders exist uh, mm-hmm. today as as existed in in 1920, with the mm-hmm. exception of of Israel.
2: Yeah. Yeah, uh,
0: not not true, <laughs> not true in Europe. Not true. in No, all. not at
1: all. No, we've got some shifting uh, borders there.
0: Fluid, yeah. So what? Um, so one one of the, the you know sort of the big backdrop of your book is the decline of of British power um, mm-hmm. in the region. What, why did British power decline in the region, and when did it start to decline?
1: Well, I think it really started to decline during the Second World War. Um, you know, maintaining an empire is expensive,
2: mm-hmm. and
1: uh, as the 20th century wore on. It was uh, increasingly uh, uh, suspect morally uh, in, in Britain, mm-hmm. uh, uh, and there were growing nationalist movements throughout the Middle East, throughout the Gulf region, um, uh, who put up a fight. You know, who who really took uh, to heart this uh, rhetoric from earlier in the century about mm-hmm. self-determination
2: mm-hmm.
1: and uh, wanted to uh, to cast off uh, all sort of European influence and, and exploitation. Mm-hmm. Uh, Britain was, of course, financially drained by the Second World War. Mm-hmm. And uh, kind of the first part of the Middle East where you saw the British begin to retreat, although very grudgingly, was in Saudi Arabia.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, the British had been the patrons of, of the, the Saudi state from its inception. Uh, you know, They had drawn the borders of, of Saudi Arabia, and uh, uh, since the days of, of T.E. Lawrence had a, a very good relationship with Ibn Saud, uh, the, the founder of the Saudi state. hmm But uh, the Americans kept making inroads uh, uh, during the 1930s, winning an oil concession from uh, uh, the the Saudi Kingdom. And uh, during the Second World War, when it became clear just how critically important uh, Persian Gulf oil would be to prosecuting the war against the Axis and Mm -hmm. also rebuilding Europe after the war, Mm -hmm. the American government... uh, sort of decided that it would be in our interest and probably the interest of all of the West if the United States were to uh, supplant the British Mm -hmm. in the region, Mm -hmm. which, uh, as you can imagine, was was not at all uh, a popular decision with uh, uh, British diplomats, particularly Mm -hmm. British diplomats in the field, in the Persian Gulf. Mm -hmm. Uh, Although there were very senior people in Whitehall who began to realize we can't manage this ourselves. Mm-hmm. We need to, as, as Churchill was fond of saying, we need to get the Americans in mm-hmm. in the Middle East. Um, the trick was going to be for the British, for the rest of their time in the region, you know, how to get keep the Americans involved, and how to use American power to support their interests rather than challenge their interests. Mm-hmm. In the region.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: you know, how to keep the Americans from from undermining them throughout the the Gulf region as they had in, in Saudi Arabia.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But uh, at the mm-hmm. same time, make sure the Americans did bear a lot of the financial and, and military responsibility for self mm-hmm. defense.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of the themes in your book, one of the things that surprised me was the reticence of Americans to become involved. I mean, maybe I was reading you incorrectly, but it seems to me no, at, at, at every moment the British were trying to get the Americans involved in some way, particularly to support their uh, military interests. And the Americans.
2: Mm-hmm. said no, said they, they said
0: no, we're just not interested in this and we're not going to come here. I think it's an instance of, of you know, uh, the e- e- as they say, I don't know if they say this in diplomatic history anymore, but either trade <laughs> follows the flag or the flag follows trade. <laughs> and this was the flag follows trade in the American case because American companies had been interested in this region for, well, since the discovery of oil.
2: Mm-hmm. But
0: the American government itself, you know, ha- took it took some positions on things like Arab nationalism that I imagine the British found very upsetting.
1: Oh, very, very. Yeah, uh, you know, one of the the major themes throughout the book is or the is the divergence of, of interest between the United States and Britain, and mm-hmm. many key areas in in the Gulf. Um, yeah, it, you know, it really surprised me to find that uh, I, when I first started the project, I thought it would be a pretty straightforward, uh, you know, uh, passing of the torch kind of story, mm-hmm. uh, Britain to the United States, and it was much more complicated than that. Um the the British did try to uh, to cling to their interests in in the region uh uh till the very last possible moment, you know, at the end of nineteen seventy one, mm-hmm. and then found informal ways to to keep their uh, mm-hmm. to preserve that influence. Um many British uh, uh, policymakers uh policy were convinced that the Americans were trying to push them out. But what I found uh, you know, when exploring the American documents was just how determined the Americans were not to accept this expensive new mm-hmm. responsibility
2: mm-hmm.
1: Uh, during the Cold War. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, American resources were vast during the Cold War, but they weren't unlimited. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, American strategic planners relied on a, uh, a, a division of, of labor between the Allies uh, mm-hmm. for the defense of, of the Western world and defense of strategic assets mm-hmm. uh, like oil. And uh, the Americans would love to have kept the British there as long as possible mm-hmm. to uh, to uh, uh, have uh, direct responsibility for Persian Gulf defense. Mm-hmm. Um, they diverged greatly on the whole issue of Arab nationalism, mm-hmm. and Middle Eastern nationalism generally. Um, the Americans always felt that the Soviet threat was the most important yeah. threat to the region. Right. The British always believed correctly that it would... The, principal threat to western interests in the region was anti-western nationalism Mm -hmm. uh... the americans were always afraid that the british would antagonize nationalist sentiment Mm -hmm. and uh... that that would open the door to further soviet uh, um, penetration of the region so they counseled the british regularly you know uh, conciliate these nationalists, yeah. reach a deal with them, yeah. uh, uh, You know, give them, give them half of what they want, yeah. and they preserve as much of the Western presence in the area as possible. Uh-huh. Uh, and the British were just kind of furious. They thought this was our closest ally, and yeah. they're counseling us to, to bargain away our position here. Yeah, it's,
0: it's, uh, I was going to say, it, it goes to kind of this moment of, uh, well, uh, at least one can perhaps tentatively speak of a uh, 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 certain American political values or political culture. And, and, you know, a lot of the things that I read in your book sound awfully Wilsonian, that, that there's this kind of Wilson hangover, that they ne- Americans never seem to be able to let go of the notion of self-determination, even when it's really quite harmful to everybody's interest. The, the sort of very basic notion that people should decide their own fate and particularly ethnic groups. And the Americans were, were always, you know, saying to the British, well, when are you going to let these people go? Mm-hmm. And the British rule mm-hmm. well, we're not gonna let these people go <laughs>
1: that's true you know uh, uh the the British always complained about the Americans viewing every nationalist movement in the Middle East as if they were the uh uh the the spiritual descendants of the american yeah, revolutionary exactly. generation yeah, that's exactly right and uh, that every you know and the, the the they just they thought the Americans just don't understand that these yeah. are not uh uh their you know their forefathers and other yeah. guys they they actually have interests that are contradictory to all yeah. of our interests uh-huh. and uh could be harmful to this and uh, they just thought this was another example of these uh you know kind of wet behind the ears yeah. Americans who didn't understand the uh the complexities the the dangers of uh, Uh, of the region
0: yeah it kind of it's it's interesting in a sense because it parallels what i think many professional historians know about our relationship with israel and that is you know we were quite happy that there would be an israeli state that's all well and good but you know, after the Israeli state formed, we basically said to them, well, now you have to defend yourselves. <laughs> we're, we're not going <laughs> to do it for you. <laughs> I mean, this is your deal. This, it's, mm-hmm. it's your show. It's not ours. And, uh, you know, it wasn't we, until
1: the late 60s. Yeah, we had a profoundly, profoundly
0: ambivalent relationship with Israel about these things. And I just think Americans have forgotten this entirely. That there was long periods of times in which you know we 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 thought that the Australians were nothing but trouble, and <laughs> and that they ought to take care of themselves. It was it was really only to, it was really only and, and again this kind of leads me to something I, I wanted you to talk about a little bit. It seems to me that having read your book, that one might sensibly say that the thing that drew the Americans into uh, the Persian Gulf and and the Middle East generally was really the Soviet Union, and and not anything else and not the British. That the Soviet Union really carried the water. By, uh, by 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 uh, by sort of antagonizing Native American anti-communism, and, and yeah, that they well, that's that's
1: true. That's true. There there was a great fear that you know the Soviet Union would be able to threaten the the natural resources of the middle, mm-hmm. and, and it was the oil in the Middle East. It is the oil of the mm-hmm. East, in the Middle East, which the United States has a great example, not because. This this is a point I always try to make to my students, not because the United States is so dependent on Persian Gulf oil, mm-hmm. because the United States actually consumes a relatively small percentage yeah. of Persian Gulf oil. Yeah. It's the fact that it's so important to Western Europe yeah, right. and Japan.
2: Mm-hmm. It
1: was so important to post-war reconstruction.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: it was so important to, uh, to waging that uh, uh, Cold War with the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, that, that drove the, you know, the United States to become more and more involved. And to, to think of the, the Persian Gulf really as part of its, its larger architecture of containment, mm-hmm. you know, defending those oil wells, making sure they didn't fall into the wrong hand,
2: mm-hmm. uh,
1: uh was uh, extremely important.
2: But Whereas I, but I think for the
1: sh- British, it was, it was their financial interest in yeah. the region and other more parochial interests.
0: Yeah, I, th- I think you make a very good point, and it's one that I think still... Um, needs to be it needs to be revisited today and that is that you know throughout the 1940s 50s and 60s 70s i would even say it 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 wasn't as if the united states at least as i read your book really needed that oil very badly but the british certainly did and so did the germans mm-hmm. and so did the japanese and they uh, the, the americans understood this as a kind of uh, the these were um um bricks in the larger wall of containment so we we needed to secure yeah. these resources for our allies exactly. um, i always get very frustrated when people you know say that you know what we do in the middle east has to do with you know direct american needs when and they they fail to realize that most of our if I'm not incorrect, most of our imported oil comes from Canada. <laughs>
2: Can, you know, Canada, Mexico, and yeah. Saudi
0: Arabia are right. very close yeah. to yeah. one another. Right. And, the yeah. of
1: oil. Right. and people tend to forget that the United States produces a, a, almost half of it.
0: Yeah, exactly. I think this is always forgotten. But the, uh, So, so um, uh, over the course of the British uh, withdrawal or decline and the American ascendance, uh, we developed some special relationships, quote-unquote, that are rather odd. Maybe you could talk a little bit about our long-term relationship with Saudi Arabia.
1: Uh, sure. Uh you know Saudi Arabia beginning in about 1944 45 became America's most important ally in the in the Arab world. Mm-hmm. Uh and its most important along with with Iran, uh its most important ally in the Persian Gulf region mm-hmm. except for the British. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a very difficult relationship, you know. It's it's a uh, uh we we share very few common values, mm-hmm. political values, social values, I guess with the uh, with the Saudis, but mm-hmm. uh it's it's a relationship of mutual dependence. Mm-hmm. Uh uh you know, Saudi oil is valuable to the West. Mm-hmm. Um and and preserving the stability of, of international petroleum markets. Mm-hmm. Uh so we have uh, uh been allies of of the Saudis since the 1940s and time after time have offered uh you know, a security guarantee to the mm-hmm. uh, to the Saudis. Uh, most recently in 1990 and
2: 91,
1: mm-hmm. uh, with Operation Desert Shield mm-hmm. and, uh, and Desert Storm, mm-hmm. uh, that was the great fear. Obviously, of, of you know uh, uh, Saddam Hussein taking over Kuwait was that he was that close to the Saudi oil field.
2: Yeah, right. so if He
1: could control both the Saudi and the Kuwaiti oil field. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, you know, then it could could jeopardize uh, uh, the, the structure of, of petroleum markets in the world. Yeah, I,
0: I find the relationship very interesting uh, in, in a number of ways, and one is that. You know I can understand the special relationship between the United States and Great Britain. Uh, we speak the same language and have largely the same culture, but i've had friends that have worked in Saudi Arabia, and there is no more un american place, perhaps <laughs> perhaps with the exception of North Korea than saudi arabia it it that's, is that's It is true. nothing like the united states <laughs> nothing no,
1: it's it's, uh, it's you know it's a it's an absolute monarchy. yeah right <laughs> one, the, one of the last in the world
0: yeah i know it's it's very it's a very odd thing we don't really and, and it's it's quite remarkable uh, you know I, I guess I should give. We should all give credit to uh, American diplomats for maintaining that relationship against, you know, I, I always wonder, well, how, why is it, was it the case that uh, Arab nationalism didn't uh, get the, the better of the Saudis when it did get the better of the Egyptians and the Syrians and so on and so forth? I, I don't know. Do you know the answer to that question?
1: Well, why did it not yeah, get the better? Why, of, of, yeah. Well, there was a great deal of effort put into uh, supporting the Saudis as sort of a, a counterweight to uh, uh, um, uh, anti-Western, kind of secular Arab nationalism mm-hmm. in the 1950s the 1960s. Mm-hmm. and 1960s. Uh, and people tend to forget that actually in the early 50s, the Saudis got along surprisingly well with Nasser's Egypt and oh, they actually, uh, actually provided yeah, yeah. a lot of the money for a lot of uh, uh, um, Nasser's anti-Western uh, uh, subversive activities uh-huh. in the area. But then it became sort of clear to the Saudi king that Nasser was eventually going to be gunning for him as kind of a symbol of the old order. And uh, he became uh, uh, more and more disenchanted, and the United States began to sort of uh, set him up as as the, uh, you know, an opposite pole Mm -hmm. to uh, uh, anti-Western secular nationalism in Mm -hmm. in the region. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, I have a graduate student now who's doing some excellent work on on, uh, Saudi Arabia as uh, being set up as, uh, you know, the keeper of the holy places Mm -hmm. and... uh, uh, um, a rallying point for Islam uh, around the world, pro-Western Islam. <laughs> <laughs> Pro-Western
0: Islam, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's no, very interesting. Now let's talk a little bit about uh, Iran, and I think you know most of what Americans remember about uh, Iran um, comes from the hostage crisis sure. incident, and then uh, they, they might be aware that there was a war between Iran and Iraq. I don't really know, but I, I'm, I'm fascinated uh, uh, by, by this particular episode. Um, because ir- Iran is a, a really a very different sort of place than, say, Afghanistan or Iraq or Saudi Arabia. It's a, it's mm-hmm. a, it's a very mm-hmm. ancient culture. It's a very interesting sort of lo- locale. The, the, um, many Americans know Iranians. Um, I know sure. many Iranians, and they're remarkably sophisticated people. Uh, they tend to be very cosmopolitan. Um, they're, 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 um, their religion tends to be much more moderate. Um, maybe you could explain to us exactly how uh, we uh, became involved with the Iranians.
1: Uh, sure. Well, you know, that goes back to the early nineteen fifties. Actually goes back to the Second World War. Uh, uh Iran was sort of a conduit for, for Western aid to the Soviet Union
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh during the war and had been divided between the British and the Soviets uh during the period. It had always been an area of, of British influence
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh to the point where the the, the Iranians deeply resented uh, uh British economic uh uh control in their in their country. Uh uh Anglo Iranian oil which is now BP, uh, had uh, an enormous uh, facility uh, in uh, southern Iran uh, that was nationalized by the Iranians in the early 1950s. -hmm. And after a a two-year standoff, uh, the British and the Americans eventually uh, cooperated to depose Mohammad Mossadegh, the the nationalist uh, prime minister of Mm -hmm of uh, Iran. And that
0: was in 1956 or when was it? That, that was in
1: 53. 53, i yeah, okay, yeah. After which the British lost their monopoly on uh, uh Iranian oil mm-hmm. and uh at American insistence accepted uh a multinational consortium in the region which the United States had a had a great deal of uh had a great share of the interest. Uh uh America again set up the the Shah of Iran as mm-hmm. a, a kind of a pole of pro-Western Stability in the region. Uh, his country borders the Soviet Union. bordered the Soviet Union. Uh, he was very pro-Western, although he wasn't above playing off the Soviets and the United States against each other on occasion. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you're right. the The Iranians, uh, ethnically Persian, uh, um, are very sophisticated, very cosmopolitan and uh, really sort of uh, looked down their nose at the Arabs across on the other side yeah. of the Gulf. Yeah. Uh, one of the the great strategy the United States had in the wake of Britain's withdrawal from the region was to encourage the Saudis and the uh, Iranians to be what, uh, what the Nixon administration called the twin pillars
2: mm-hmm. of
1: uh, pro-Western stability in the region.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: What they failed to understand was that they viewed each other more as rivals in mm-hmm. the region than as allies.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, the... The, uh, there's a, a, a great quote in, in my book from the American ambassador in, in Tehran, Armin Meyer, who uh, said that you know was was basically outlining why the Iranians kind of uh, looked down on the Arabs. They thought they were culturally inferior, mm-hmm. and and he said, and of course there's uh, there's always the uh, the kind of fight over uh, a shared inheritance, uh, you know, when the British left that would uh, make sure that they they remained adversaries rather mm-hmm. than important allies.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I know that uh, I had uh, a number of contacts. This is actually in the 1990s. Uh, that is, people that I worked with, uh, senior historians who worked in the area who were um, invited to Iran in the 70s, actually, by, at the behest of the, um, of the Shah to come help set up the Iranian system of higher education. And they, they describe just truly lavish building projects. And just oh. r- absolutely remarkable things that were being done there under the Shah, of course, in, in the context of this general repression, but this kind of huge modernizing effort that was funded by oil money, and how they worked hand in glove with, uh, with the United States, and then of course it all, it all, it all fell apart um, for for reasons which I guess we don't have to go into. So um, one of the things as you as you point out in the book is that uh, once the, um, once the British decided to. Uh, withdraw. I guess it was in the mid '60s that they started to make motions in this direction. This rather upset the Americans. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about that.
1: Well, yeah, you know, the United States was was bogged down in Vietnam, mm-hmm. increasingly in the '60s, and uh, and Persian Gulf oil did uh, uh, supply a lot of the American military effort mm-hmm. in, in Southeast Asia. Uh, and uh, there was this uh, this general feeling that uh, you know the United States can't uh, can't come to the rescue of of the Persian Gulf region if the British decide to to leave here. We can't step into their shoes. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, therefore, the Johnson administration made every effort to encourage the British. Please remain there as long as you can. Uh, uh, you know, whereas the British felt that they had been getting uh, sort of lukewarm support from the Americans in the region for for years, mm-hmm. now all of a sudden the Americans were were pleading with them to stay, mm-hmm. and it was uh, it came as a, a great uh, a shock to the Johnson administration when the uh, the Wilson government in Britain, the Labour
2: government, mm-hmm.
1: uh, formally announced that uh, you know they were going to withdraw the last British troops from the area mm-hmm. by the end of 1971. Mm-hmm. And uh, I described this uh, uh, very uh, uh, famous meeting that the British Foreign Secretary George Brown had in, in Washington in January 1968, shortly before the Wilson uh, government formally made the announcement that it would be withdrawing its troops from the Gulf.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: It sent the Foreign Secretary to, to meet with uh, uh, higher-ups in the Johnson administration to, to give them the heads up, to, mm-hmm. to let them know this was coming. Mm-hmm. And uh George Brown met first with uh, Dean Rusk, the Secretary of State, mm-hmm. who was known as this very courtly southern gentleman and uh he was just furious with uh with George Brown. The 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 quote that came out of that that's been quoted uh, in many different places in, in both the uh, the British and the American Memorandum Conversation and then uh, various cabinet diaries, uh, memoirs. Uh, uh, Rusk uh, looked at George Brown and said, "For God's sake, act like Britain."
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh,
1: which which I thought just spoke volumes about what America expected of its of its ally. In yeah,
0: region. yeah, we weren't uh, exactly treating the British like equals at this
1: point. I think that, that's true. That's yeah, true, and the British felt that uh, uh, very uh, very keenly.
0: Yeah, I mean, one might imagine they said, "You know, we warned you about this." that this could get out of hand and you didn't pay attention to us, that you know, if you had a stronger mm-hmm. presence in the area, then you wouldn't be so worried now. Because obviously things were uh, sort of heating up, in, especially in the late 60s with the, what is it, the 67 war and then the Yom Kippur war. Um, the, right. the, the, this must have changed the status of Israel in the eyes of American policy planners as well
1: it it did indeed it did indeed and and this was going on at the same time that britain was was suffering so greatly financially uh, uh that it it just you know it eventually ended up devaluing the pound by twenty percent at the end of nineteen sixty seven uh, um, uh wilson himself who was had been thought to have been kind of on the left of the the Labour Party was actually kind of outflanked on his left by some of his cabinet members who were increasingly demanding, you know, uh, that it end this, this sort of imperial project in the Middle East,
2: uh-huh. you know, just
1: a uh, morally reprehensible in the eyes of of many of his own cabinet members. Uh-huh. And uh, these things kind of came together. They had suffered during the, you know, there was a, a an oil embargo, an oil cut off during the 1967 war and uh, uh later on in 73 it was uh, again oil cut off to, by the the um, organization of arab uh petroleum exporting countries within OPEC uh uh of any western country that was thought to have given aid to the israelis during that war uh-huh. so uh uh yeah the british uh you know Really felt like they were between a rock and a hard place.
0: Mm-hmm. And how, you, 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 uh, you mentioned that uh, it changed the relationship between the United States and Israel. At this point, uh, was it the case that the Israelis were had sort of their stock had risen in the eyes of the um, the Americans? When is this? Uh, <laughs> the, the cliche that everybody knows is our aircraft carrier in the Middle East. Um, w- was this at the moment at which Israel became our aircraft carrier in the Middle East? In the Middle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, you know, and, and shortly thereafter, uh, 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 the United States became increasingly alarmed at the amount of soviet aid that was given to the arab government yeah, no, fighting a, yeah. uh, in, the, in the region and you know against israel in 1967 yeah um the united states had been pretty content to let the the french supply a lot of israel's military needs although the french were right. uh, beginning to understand that uh you know the arab oil would not be forthcoming if they kept supplying military goods to, to the Israelis, so they they had cut that off earlier in the decade yeah and, uh, yeah, the United States found itself moving more squarely behind Israel.
2: Yeah, than, than well, we, we,
0: we, yeah we needed them at that point. It is funny you mention about the weaponry and so on and so forth because I know if you see pictures, I, I'm kind of a military history buff myself, if you see pictures of the 67 and 72 war, especially the 67 war, and you actually see what kind of equipment the Israeli had, it was, uh, it was, it was very often um, uh, American surplus from World War II.
2: <laughs>
1: well, you know, yeah. 1967, you saw yeah. a lot of, you, you, the first thing you see in the, in the old newsreel footage are, are French fighter planes. Yeah, no, that's uh, right. But by yeah. 1973, the fight American right. fighter.
0: Plane. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And then by 72, of course, the the, uh, the the Egyptians and the, and the Syrians were uh, were armed with the, the most advanced Soviet weapons, uh, oh. and of course, they they did relatively well. I mean, one weapon in particular I can tell you about is the, the um you know, they had wire-guided anti-tank missiles, which which were uh, really quite something at the time, and they they shocked the heck out of the Israelis. And the Israelis, you know, had to, you know, they really needed a certain amount of force modernization at that point um, because they were, you know, while they weren't defeated, they they certainly weren't were not handed a resounding victory. Um, mm-hmm. So then, by '72, uh, the. The British have withdrawn, and um, that's right. What is the what is the American position at that time? And, and maybe you could just take us. I know this is outside the parameters of the book, but for those listeners that would be interested, maybe you could take us, uh, if you'd be willing, from seventy two to more
1: or less the present.
0: How, how do these? How does how does the American relationship in this area with the
1: well, Arab you countries know, develop? The the Americans had decided uh, to continue with the the Johnson administration policy of uh, um, of encouraging saudi iranian cooperation and the nixon administration uh, especially concentrated on iran Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, iran became the recipient of huge amounts of american military aid in the 1970s and this really fit in with the the whole uh, uh... the nixon doctrine of uh, providing military and technical assistance to our allies in key regions of the world,
2: Mm -hmm. but expecting
1: them to provide the military manpower to defend themselves in the region. And this fit in beautifully with the Shah's uh, uh, vision of uh, uh, the role that Iran should play in the Persian Gulf region as essentially kind of the the sheriff of of the region and a great regional hegemon. Mm -hmm. Uh, So he was very pleased. Richard Nixon traveled to Tehran. Uh, in May of 1972, on his way home from his summit in Moscow with, mm-hmm. uh, with Brezhnev. And uh, uh, one of the interesting things he said to the Shah, he basically, he and, and Henry Kissinger had basically uh, signed off, uh, or agreed to sign off on providing this, the Shah with just about anything he wanted in
2: the, mm-hmm. in the way of
1: military goods. And at the end of his final meeting with the Shah, uh, Richard Nixon leaned across the table and, uh, and said to the Shah, protect me. Wow, oh, right. which uh, is an, is an yeah. interesting way to put it. Yeah. You know,
2: yeah, uh,
1: yeah. he he really was looking to the Shah to provide you know the United, the front line of American defense in the Persian Gulf. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, so the United States, you know, continued to during the 1970s for as long as they could to encourage uh, Saudi Arabia, but more so Iran, to to be this sort of bulwark of uh, pro-Western stability and, and defense of the Gulf. And uh, when the Shah's government came crumbling down in 1978, uh, uh, you know, it, it left the United States with really no option but to become involved directly uh, in a, on a large scale, politically and diplomatically, and even militarily in the Gulf. Yeah. Uh, you know, Jimmy Carter in his State of the Union address in 1980. Uh, articulated the, the so-called Carter Doctrine, which mm-hmm. said that the oil fields in the Middle East were a vital interest of the United States mm-hmm. and that the United States would uh, do whatever was necessary to defend them. Mm-hmm. Um, and from then on, you saw the United States more involved uh, uh, militarily in the Gulf, reflagging Kuwaiti oil tankers in mm-hmm. the 80s, engaging in a small-scale uh, naval war with the Iranians mm-hmm. in, in the late 80s as, as well, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, supporting Saddam Hussein's Iraq against uh, Iran, uh, uh, you know, f- because they viewed uh, the spread of radical Islam in the region as a as a more potent threat, a more immediate threat to yeah. Western and American interests than than Saddam Hussein was at the yes.
0: time. That that is an odd and forgotten alliance.
1: I think is, it's, it's uh, very strange. Yeah. You know, I show my students in class this, this fuzzy photo of Donald Rumsfeld shaking hands with Saddam yeah. Hussein yeah. in 1983 or 1984.
2: Right. Uh, yeah. But
1: uh, and I always sort of explain it by uh, uh, telling them about uh, Lord Palmerston's victim. You know that that. Uh, Britain had no permanent friends, and right. no permanent enemies, only permanent interests.
2: Yeah, exactly. You know, so, yeah. Uh, uh, no. things
1: could be very fluid, politically.
0: That's interesting because this provides a kind of general background. I think that our listeners would be interested in t- for for the uh, for the defense of, of Kuwait in the uh, or, uh, in the um, first Gulf War. This didn't come out of nowhere.
1: No, no, not at all. They had been, uh, uh, like I say, reflagging these uh, Kuwaiti ships uh, uh, for a few years. Uh, um, I can't remember what the name of the operation was called, mm-hmm. but uh, uh, yeah, there has been the idea that you know we have to protect the, the flow of oil from from the region. Uh, the Kuwaitis had actually been leaning kind of toward the political left in the in the 80s, as I recall, but uh, of course there's no more. Pro-American country in the world now. Right?
0: Mm-hmm. No, I imagine that, that's no, has true. Been in the last
1: uh, 18 years.
0: Um, and so, how did it w- w- when we uh, d- defended Kuwait and and was it Operation what did they what did they call it Desert Desert Storm? That was Desert Storm. Yes. Uh, h- how did this um, ripple through the area at the time diplomatically?
1: Uh, well, it created uh, a lot of uh, sort of untenable conditions. We you know we now know. Uh, um, it resulted in a, a large uh, American military presence in Saudi Arabia,
2: mm-hmm. uh,
1: uh, which uh, you know was one of the, the chief um, grievances of, mm-hmm. of uh, Osama bin Laden and mm-hmm. Al Qaeda that mm-hmm. uh, this, this Western, this American military force was was defiling the. Uh, the land that has the holy sites mm-hmm. the
0: and where where were they where were they
1: based were
0: they based on the on the, on the iraqi border or where, where uh, they? they were based
1: where were they it was the huge uh, uh, military complex which was just closed down in the last two or three years uh, uh i think it was the king fodh air base uh-huh. and i'm not certain yeah, what part of the country it is away yeah. it's, it's from most populations yeah
2: all right
1: uh, so it also sorry. resulted in the creation of, or the recreation of the U.S. Fifth Fleet with its headquarters in Bahrain.
2: Okay, that's right, yeah.
1: Um, <laughs> and large scale American military bases that are still in places like the United Arab Emirates and Bahrain and Qatar. Uh, um, so uh-huh. there's a, there's a sizable, it's a much larger military presence, American military presence there now than the British ever had
2: uh-huh.
1: in the region. Uh, at its height, I believe in the Gulf, the British only had about eight thousand troops mm-hmm. uh, uh, and that was considered untenable mm-hmm. and uh, even though it wasn 't all that expensive to maintain mm-hmm. uh, but the American military presence there now is uh is much larger
0: mm-hmm. and uh, how is the case you, this is something I think that our, our listeners would be interested in, and I know I am is it that um it, 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 we talked about this a little bit before, but Iraqi claims on Kuwait are hardly new
1: that's right they they go back to at least the 30s uh, uh and probably before uh you know there was the the first kuwait crisis was actually in 1961 mm-hmm. uh just after the british had given kuwait its full independence uh the iraqis began to make threatening sounds and move troops or said they were moving troops toward the border with kuwait and uh the british had to to launch a a military operation landed troops uh, again in kuwait uh, uh, for for several weeks or several months, mm-hmm. uh, in the in the face of this this perceived threat, it turned out the threat was actually a little overblown. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, but uh, yeah, this is not a new thing at all.
0: Yeah, no, exactly. And then we, we should probably mention, of course, this uh, it's one of the great forgotten military conflicts of the 20th century, and that is the Iraq Iran War. Um, maybe you could talk a little bit about that and how that impacted American um, mm-hmm. uh, diplomatic interests in the area.
1: Well, uh, yeah, people tend to forget because we didn't see it on our television yeah. screens every night. But it was a war fought on an enormous scale. Yeah. Uh, I believe there were more than a million people killed mm-hmm. uh, uh, during the course of an eight-year eight war mm-hmm. uh, between Saddam Hussein and, and uh, uh, the Islamic Republic of, of Iran.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, Huge-scale battles. And the, the United States did end up uh, uh, giving intelligence support and uh uh Some material support to Saddam Hussein
2: mm-hmm.
1: as a counterweight to to uh Iranian influence in the region um including uh financial credits and some of the uh basic components that uh later Saddam converted into chemical weapons mm-hmm. uh that he used against Iranians and against some of his own people uh and uh which you know were, were much in the news uh, uh over
2: mm-hmm. the last decade or so.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, or yeah, no, I, I think it, it is one of these things that uh, it just it fell off the radar of Americans that this was going on at all. I mean, it, it, it's, a very, it's very confusing if you just see pictures of it because, again, I'm kind of a student of military history. And if you look at the Iraqi forces that are, of course, armed by... There are allies, and they're armed by the Soviets. And you look at the Iranians, and they're our enemies, and they're armed by us. Um, so it was kind of a strange thing. So strange. Let, let me ask you, um, you know, our, our time is getting short, but I, I really want to hear what you have to say about um, what, I guess, two questions, what you think will happen in the Persian Gulf and uh, what you would like to see happen. Oh gosh! You can feel free not to
1: answer those questions if you <laughs> those want. Those are very hard. You know, yeah. uh, uh, as a as a recovering political scientist and and uh, and historian now, uh, you know, I'm always a little leery of, of sure. prognosticating. Yeah. Uh, uh, um, yeah, you know, I, I try to help. Uh, I try to help my uh, readers and students see the the context in which. Current events are, are playing yeah. out, but uh, prognosticating well, may be a little, little beyond my, my.
0: Well, I can sense. I can put the question a little bit differently. If uh, you know, if um, you know, John McCain or Barack Obama's transition team calls you as well, they should, and says, uh, Taylor, uh, we'd like to have someone come give us a report as to what we should do. What would you say to them? <laughs> you probably say no i'm not yeah, coming <laughs> yeah, yeah. but if you did we're 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 compelled by um greater patriotic interest what would you say to them what should <laughs> what should happen
1: well you know there there is a way to uh i would say there is a way to encourage liberalization in the area if not democratization in the area that uh did not necessarily involve introducing american combat forces to the region
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh uh and uh, uh you know that, that the united states needs to uh, uh help promote its its liberal values and liberal mm-hmm. political institutions mm-hmm. perhaps more through example and and through uh, uh education than uh, uh perhaps using using military mm-hmm. tools and mm-hmm. i think you know this is this is the lesson that the the british learned 80 almost 90 years ago
2: mm-hmm.
1: that uh the the americans failed to learn in the last uh 5 or 6 years is mm-hmm. that uh you know, American military forces in the region tend to be incendiary, foreign mm-hmm. military forces in yeah.
2: the region,
1: and oh, uh, right. perhaps uh, uh, more of an impediment to the United States pursuing its interests there than, yeah. than uh, uh, anything else.
0: Yeah, this is a very difficult situation. I, I had the great good fortune to interview a fellow um, who was both a military advisor between 1970 and 73 in Vietnam and then went on to write a book about... The American withdrawal from Vietnam. His name's James Wilbanks. Actually, if listeners are interested, there's an interview with him on the site, uh, and you know he had some very interesting things to say about how difficult it is to withdraw from a place like this. How how there really are, are there 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 are no really good choices um, militarily or politically that, that you you have to make here um, because we have dependents now in Iraq. I mean, we have people that work for us, and mm-hmm. you know there's the you know the more general a kind of a, what is sometimes called the pottery barn doctrine you know we broke it and we bought it and and you know i don't i don't really i, I don't think anyone exactly knows what we should do now i i, I really don't right. there's no you know, easy answer to this
1: one of the one of the things that i uh, i try to bring out in the book is that uh, while western countries have tried to pursue their interest in the region uh, you know the peoples of the region have have their own agendas. They have their own interests that, that yeah. long predate Western mm-hmm. interests there. Yeah. And uh, you know they're they're trying to pursue those uh, at the same time, uh, uh, you know, complicating the the playing field while while the United States yeah. and Britain were trying to pursue their Cold War and late imperial interests.
0: Yeah. No, I think. Uh, yeah. Whoever um, sits in the Oval Office next January is going to have their hands full. I think. Yes, with, they uh, certainly are. It's really quite a mess. So, um, Taylor, we've we've taken up a lot of your time, and we really appreciate it. It's been a fascinating conversation. Let me close with what has been our traditional question here on New Books in History, and that is, what are you working on now? What is your next
2: project?
1: Well, I'm uh, I'm kind of moving out of the uh, the Persian Gulf and uh, into the Indian Ocean uh, mm-hmm. with my next project. I'm I'm uh, working on sort of an, an international history of the British Indian Ocean territory
2: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: and uh, the large American military facility on the island of Diego Garcia.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And, oh, yeah, uh, Diego
0: Garcia. That's a, that's a very interesting story.
1: Yeah. a very interesting story. and trying to fit it into kind of a larger picture of uh, uh, Indian Ocean studies that uh, – yeah a very vital field yeah, in no, history these ex- days
0: yeah that's exactly right actually i i've talked the, the the burgeoning field of world history is is looks looks at things like that um exactly. uh, you know, sort of um, broad regions of the world that we um we don't ordinarily group in our kind of nation state centric model right. well i i i um i fully expect that the transition teams of either the obama or the McCain uh um uh campaigns will be calling you soon, and I hope that they do. <laughs> well, I'll be putting by my phone. That's right. Well, um, we've been talking to uh, Taylor Fain about his new book, um, American Ascendance and British Retreat in the Persian Gulf region. It's, it's a fantastic book, and I highly counsel everyone to go uh, get it and read it, especially if you uh, are planning on voting, and I hope that you are. Um, so, Taylor, thanks very much for being on the show. We really appreciate it. Thank you. All right. Take care now. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You've been listening to an interview with Taylor Fain, author of American Ascendance and British Retreat in the Persian Gulf Region. I'm Marshall Tho, the host of New Books in History. I hope you have a good week.